Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. The word of the Lord reads this way. Then Jesus came to Galilee from the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had bab- was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the life-giving Word of the Lord. The 18th century theologian John Wesley once wrote, Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. Um, If you were to ask people, or at least enough people, what they think about God, and what they believe he's like, and who they think he is, Um, you will invariably hear someone give the answer, God is love. And this is the answer that that you will hear from Christians, uh, from every denomination, from liberal to conservative. God is love. This is the answer that's also given by agnostics and people who have uh, Eastern religious backgrounds and people who really don't even know very much about God. If there's an explanation that many people seem to gravitate towards is the fact that God is love. Now, obviously, this has a wide range of meanings for us. Because not everybody means the same thing. For some people who are pantheists, they believe that God is the universe and the universe is God. God could quite literally be love to them. Because God is this loving energy or force that, that, is, that fills the universe and holds everything together. For others, when they say that God is love, they simply mean that God is loving emotionally. That God is, his dominant characteristic is love. And what that means is God is then accepting and he's willing to tolerate any and all perspectives and behaviors. And God does never, never condemns anyone because they suppose that's what a loving God was supposed to be like. Then you have the classic Christian understanding, you know, where God is love. uh, Because love is one of his divine attributes. Love is part of his divine nature. It's a part of who he is, like being holy, right? God is holy, and he is just, and he's righteous, and he's all-powerful. Love is one of God's defining characteristics. It's what makes God, God. In fact, he wouldn't be God without love. It's essential to who he is, because it's, it's, it's his nature, right? In fact, we see that in First John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, he says, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The Word of God, the Bible tells us very plainly that God is love. And part of knowing God then, and knowing what He is about, is to recognize and understand that He is love. And because of that, we being made in His image, are to love other people like God loves. That's what John is saying here. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows 
God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so, yes, God is indeed love. It's the right answer. And the, ne- and the thing is, next week, we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the fact that he's love, while at the same time that he is also just, that God is a God of grace. At the same time, he's a God of wrath, right? We're going to spend some time talking about his loving nature next week. But this week, as we continue our series, where we've been asking this complex uh, but very simple question of who is God, we are going to learn that the fact that God is love, the fact that love is part of his divine nature, that fact has enormous mind-blowing implications for how we actually understand who God is. Right? The simple fact, this basic fact that God is love in his nature, his very essence, right, has earth-shattering implications for how we understand who God is and how we relate to him. And it all begins with the fact that love always requires a relationship. Love always requires a relationship on some level. Because love, at its, by its very nature, its very essence must always include at least two things. There must be someone who does the loving, and there must be someone who or something that's the object of that love. Or in other words, you have one who feels the emotion of love and and who acts loving in a way toward the object of that love. You see, you can't have love unless there's something or someone to love. Like, Parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren, a husband and a wife, a friend and another friend, a person and his enemy, as Jesus says. On some level, love is an exchange or a transference of of emotion or intention or action, right? From uh, From one to the next, love always begins somewhere and is transferred somewhere. You have someone who who loves And you have the object of that love or the recipient of that love. So love is a, at a minimum, it requires two things or at least two people. Now, love can be reciprocal where each person that loves the other is loved back by the one that they love, which means both of them do loving and both of them are objects of the love, which we hope to see in marriages. We hope that's how marriages work, that you have two people that are loving the other and they are both the object of each other's love. That's what we hope to see in families. That's what we hope to see in friendships, that love both flows both ways. I love you, you love me. That's what we hope to experience in those relationships. Love can be reciprocal, but love also can be one directional. I think we've all experienced what it's like to love someone who didn't love us back. To care about somebody deeply that really could care less if we existed. We know what it's like to be rejected and brokenhearted because we love someone who doesn't love us back. We, we love someone who doesn't return our love. But even then, Even in that example, there still must be two things. One who does the loving and the one who is the object of the love. Whether that love is is welcome or whether it's rejected. Now, love doesn't have to, to be just between two people either. Because a person can love just about anything. If if you're warm back there, one of you guys, if you want to just crack one of them windows, I'm totally cool with that. So it just suddenly got really warm in this building, you know when we had a door that opened all the time and we never had this issue before. So, 
But the thing is, is you, it doesn't take two people to love because people can love just about anything. In fact, how many of you love your pets? Right? You love them very much, right? Yes. My wife, she loves her little dog, Paige, really very dearly. She, she loves that, that, that dog like it's a little person, right? She calls her fur baby, right? Um, and, and because I love my wife, I tolerate that little dog crawling on me and getting my face right here and whining at me for me to go get her a treat, you know? People love their pets with deep affections. And people love lots of things. People love their cars. People love their motorcycles. People love, love their jobs. They love, 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 they, people love their money. People love power. People love sports and their teams. People love gossip. Right? People love the idea of truth. I mean, I love, I love the Bible. I love worship music. I love preaching. Right? Some people love nature. People love their houses. Some people have their hobbies. People love lots and lots of different things. But always, fundamentally, in every one of the situations where there is love, there is always some kind of a relationship. There's at least two things. There's the one who loves, and there's the object of that love, whether it's a person or an animal or a thing or a place or an idea. The idea of love, for it to be meaningful, at its core, means plurality. There's, there's more than one. There must be more than one thing. There must be a relationship between someone and someone else or something else. Now, the reason why this is important for our discussion about who God is is because God is love. Love is one of his attributes. It's what makes God, God. As we talked about in week one, that God in his, in his essence is existence itself. God is reality. He just is. That's, just what his name, that's what his name Yahweh means. The one who exists. That's why he says, I am who I am. Right? He is eternal. He never has had a beginning. He never will end. God exists into eternity past, all the way into eternity future. God is God all of the time. And because God is eternal, that means he is constant and he is unchanging. He is the same today, yesterday, um, and tomorrow. God is, is not growing. God is, is not developing. He's not evolving. He is not changing. God is constant. He simply is, which means who he is today is who he has always been eternally. What God is is what he has always been, which means... God is and has always been holy. God is and has always been just. God is and has always been righteous. God is and has always been faithful. God is and has always been powerful and all-knowing. And God is and always has been love. Now, I don't want to lose anybody in the weeds today. right? But if you can track with me, this is actually really important. Because we know... That God did not become love. Okay? This is important. He didn't become love. He has always been love. I hope you understand that. That God did not become love or loving. He has always been that way. Right? Otherwise, if God became love, he would have be a, he'd be a changing God. But we know that God does not change. And so God has always been love in his nature and in, in, in eternity past. And this tells us a lot about who God is. 
Because remember, if love at its core requires a relationship and God is love, then who was God in relationship with before he created the universe? Because he was love for all eternity past, which means he must have been in a relationship in all eternity past. So who was God loving before creation existed? Because remember, there's only two states of being. There's only two kinds of existence. You have God, and then you have all of his creation. If it is created, it is not God. And if it's, if it's God, it's not created. God and his creation are distinct. God is eternal. Creation is temporal. Which means before creation ever existed, there was only one God. There's only God himself. There was no heaven. There was no earth. There was no angels, no stars, no planets, no people, no anything. There was, it was not even the emptiness of the vacuum of space that we can imagine. God existed in eternity past when there was no creation at all. So do we imagine God was just standing there for eternity? What I do today? Just with nothing to do? No, think about this. If, if God were, if, if there was just God and God never changes and God is love, but love requires relationship, who was God in relationship with and who was God loving before he created anything else? Who is the object of God's perfect love in eternity past? Because it had to be somebody or it had to be something. Otherwise, God would not be love because you cannot have love without a relationship. And you cannot have love with both the one who loves and the object of that love. There must be at least two, which means for us, there's really only two possibilities. Either God began to love after creation, which would give him then something to love. Or there has always been someone or something in all eternity for him to love. That's the only two options. Now, the first option for God, if this, if, if this was true, for God to begin loving his creation after he created it or after he conceived of his creation in his mind, that would have huge implications because that means that God then had changed, right? That he, he, he was different. He didn't love before creation because there was not something to love. And then he began loving his creation afterwards. He became something he wasn't before, which means love is not one of God's divine attributes. Love is not what makes him God because the loving part of him would then not be eternal. It would simply just be temporal. It began at some point, which means love is not really then a defining characteristic of who God is. I mean, if he, he could still be very powerful. He could still be um, just. He could still be righteous. But he couldn't in his nature, in his essence, be love because he became that at some point. Which means love would be really not a defining characteristic of who he is. Right? He became love in time and space after something happened, which means God would have changed. And so also God then, would, it would prove that God's most powerful and important attribute has nothing to do with love, but it would be something else. And so then it would be wrong to say that God is love, if that perspective is true. But we know that it's wrong, because we know by God's word that he doesn't change. 
We also know that the word tells us that he is, in fact, love. So there's only one possibility left. And that must be that there was someone or something in all of eternity for God to love. An object of that love. His love had to flow from himself to someone or something. God must have been in relationship for all eternity past. But who was it with? Well, the answer to this question that we're going to see in the Bible is the Trinity. Because God is a triune God. Our God is three in one, Father, Spirit, Son. God exists in eternity past in a loving relationship with himself, in a triune relationship with himself. God the Father loving eternally God the Son. And the Son loving the Father. And the Father and the Son loving the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit loving the Father and the Son. All three members of the Godhead in relationship eternally with each other. Loving perfectly each other. Delighting in each other for eternity past. That right there is how we know God can be love. Because He has always been love. And the reason why he's always been love is because there's always, always, always been a divine relationship in the triune God. We see only, you see only a triune God can be in his very nature love because love requires a relationship. So when you say God is love, what you're saying in essence is that God is a trinity. Because only a triune God can be love in his nature. Now think about this, okay? Because this, this is where it kind of gets a little deeper. If God is God, then he's eternal. And God is eternal, that means he's unchanging. And if he's unchanging, then he must have always been loved by his nature. And if he's always been loved in his nature, then he must have always been in a relationship to experience that love because love always requires relationships. And if God always has been in a relationship, then he's always been triune as God reveals himself in Scripture. And that's, and so with that, with that and so with that, among the things that we know, about God and about who he is. We know that he is first eternal, that he never ends. We know that he's holy, which means he's pure and different from us. He's transcendent, which means he is outside of his creation and greater than his creation. He is also eminent, which means he is in his creation and near and intimate with us. And he is also triune. God is a trinity. And before we jump too far ahead, let me just tell you, the series that we've been, we've been answering some really big questions, right? And we have talked about some big topics to this point in the last three weeks. Uh, and there's more to cover than I can possibly review and do justice. And so I want to encourage, if you've missed any of the last three weeks, just go to our SoundCloud page or our church website and pick up um, the, the messages that you, you've missed. And today's conversation will make much more sense, and so will the ones in the coming weeks. But the fact is is if you want to know who God is, you can begin with the fact that God is eternal, that God is holy, God is transcendent, God is eminent, and now he is also a trinity, which means he is one God who exists eternally in three persons. One God who exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's who God is. 
And, and that's how we, that's how the church from the very beginning has always understood God to be. There's never been a point in Christian history that the church at large didn't believe that God is three in one. God is a triune God. Now, let me just lay my cards on the table here and, and just share a couple things with you. First of all, the, this idea of the Trinity is a divine mystery, okay? Which means it's not been revealed to us. That's what a mystery is in the Bible. It's just something that has not been fully revealed. There was a point that Christ Jesus was a mystery, that, but they didn't know who he was until it was revealed, right? The idea of the Trinity is a divine mystery. It is, it is something that God reveals about himself, but it's not something we're really going to be able to fully understand and grasp the sign of heaven, which is okay. Because as we talked about before, God by his very nature is bigger than our imaginations. God being transcendent means he's outside of and greater than the universe, which means he is not going to fit within the confines of your mind. If God fits into your mind, understand if God makes sense to you completely, like you fully wrap your head around God, then you don't worship God. You worship an idol. So the idea of the Trinity then being more than we can fully grasp is not unusual because God by his very nature and his definition is bigger than your imagination. Number two, there's nothing in all of creation that can help us to fully understand what it means for God to be a Trinity. Right? Because what does it mean for God to be three in one? What can I possibly point to? I mean, there's lots of analogies that we use. I've used some analogies before, even in my, my own life as a pastor, which I feel like they don't do it justice. I don't use them anymore because they can't fully express the triune nature of God without leading people into heresy, right? And so there's limits to what we're going to understand from creation, right? To be able to understand this mystery of God. Number three, this is probably the most important of the, of the points, is we believe that God is a trinity, not because it makes sense to our mind and not because, it's the, because we, we want it to be this way and not because someone decided in the past for it to be this way. We believe God is a trinity because that is how God reveals himself to us. You see, the only way that you're going to know a God, a transcendent God, is for him to condescend and actually tell you what he's like, to reveal what he's like, and that's what he's done. Right? So God is not what... It's not limited to what we imagine or what we like or what we think. The only way that we're going to know God is for him to reveal himself. And he has in his word. He reveals himself as a trinity in the Bible. And so I want to take some time this morning and just briefly walk through the things that we know about God being trying from his word. And most of you, if you have been, have been Christians for any time at all, will know that what I'm talking about is stuff that you've heard before. So the first thing that we know from Scripture is God is three persons. We see it from the very beginning of Scripture that God describes himself in plural pronouns. Genesis 126, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 3.22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Genesis 11.7, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Isaiah 6, 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? 
God uses plural pronouns when he talks about himself in the Old Testament. The Old Testament clearly reveals the, the plural and triune nature of God. In fact, the word that's used for God himself, the Hebrew word Elohim, uh, which means God in Hebrew, it's a peculiar word because itself is a word that is both simultaneously singular and plural. It's an idea of oneness and unity, but plurality at the same time. So you can say of Elohim, him and they, and it would make sense. Not to mention that the Bible says that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit of God, all three persons in the Bible somewhere are described as God. Of the Father, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, chapter 3, I mean, Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. The Bible clearly identifies the person of God, I mean, the person of Father as God. If you read the Bible at all, you will find, you will figure out that, that, heavenly, that our Heavenly Father is God, right? And it's the same thing with the Son, Jesus. In the beginning, in John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know from the context that the Word is Jesus. John 1, 18, in the uh, Christian Standard Bible, it renders it this way. It says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, has revealed him. John twenty twenty eight. Thomas said, to Jesus, my Lord and my God. The Bible declares the person of the Son, Christ, to be God. And it's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit is declared to be God. Acts chapter 5, the apostle Peter catches Ananias and Sapphira in a lie. If you ever read that story, it's a it's kind of a scary, kind of cool story. All right, but Ananias and Sapphira, they go, they sell some property, and they're going to give the money to the church. But instead of giving the money to the church, they held some back, which is fine. They could have done that. But they lied and said, well, we, what we give to the church is everything we sold. And they didn't want to, they wanted to be hypocrites, basically. Right? And so Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. The person of the Holy Spirit is God. Now, some might say, well, the, the Holy Spirit, wait a minute. It, that's not a person. The Holy Spirit's a spirit. Well, actually, he's a person. The Bible refers to him as a person. He refers to him as a masculine person. John chapter 18 is a very clear picture of this. Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Bible uses masculine pronouns to describe the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is a person. The Bible also describes the Spirit by using words that are associated with people. The Spirit does what people do or what persons do. Right? The Spirit guides, speaks, and hears, and declares, and teaches, and glorifies, and gives gifts, and comforts, and convicts. The Spirit can even be grieved. The Spirit can be hurt like a person can be hurt. The Holy Spirit acts like a person because He is a person. So the Bible makes it very, very clear that God is, is three persons, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And at the same time, these three persons are distinct persons. They are not the same person in different modes, as some people would suggest. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, it helps us to see um, this very truth. Verse 16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And in this little picture, in this text, what we have is all three persons of the Trinity. They're present in the same moment, but they're distinct. Jesus is in the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon him from heaven like a dove. And God the Father is in heaven declaring, this is my beloved Son. All three persons are visible or present in this moment in history, which means they are distinct from one another. You can identify them distinctly. Just like the Great Commission, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is three persons, but three distinct persons. That's, that's number one. That's one of the things that we know. The other thing that we know is that each person is fully God. Scripture teaches that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all fully God. They're not partly God. They're not one-third, one-third, one-third God. They are all fully God. They are fully divine, fully in the essence of God. The Father is fully God. We see that in the Old Testament, right? It's, you know, it's clear. The Son is fully God. Hebrews tells us, uh, chapter 1 tells us that the Son is the exact representation of God. Titus 2.13 tells us that uh, the Son is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus is equal um, with God. The Father is fully God, and the Son then is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is also fully God. As we've already seen in chapter 5 of Acts, where Peter tells Ananias, you didn't lie to men, you lied to God, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Peter equates the Holy Spirit with God. Not to mention the Bible speaks of the Spirit as being all-knowing and ever-present and all-powerful. So the, so the Spirit, like the Father and the Son, are fully God. So number one, God exists in three persons. Number two, each person is fully God. Number three, there is only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. God makes it clear from Genesis to Revelation that there is only one God. One unified God. So we're not talking about many different gods. We're not talking about three, a, a, a tritheism as, as the Muslims suppose. We are talking about one unified God. And so here we are. This is the mystery, right, of how God shows himself. This is how God in his own word tells us what he is like. Not what we think he's like, right, but what he tells us he is like. God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three distinct persons are fully God, and there's only one God. That's how God has revealed himself to us. That is how God describes himself, right? If you actually read the Bible, right, you will see God talking about himself as existing in three distinct persons. 
the Trinity. He is triune. Now, here is a truth that some people are going to push back against because they will not understand. Right? They will say, that don't make no sense. Right? They'll say, that's just a contradiction. How can God be one and at the same time be three? It's a contradiction. And to, to that I would answer, no, it's not. It's not a contradiction. It's a divine mystery. Right? Two different things. It's not a contradiction. It's a divine mystery. God is not one in the same way that he's three. If I said to you that God is one, but at the same time he's not one, then that would be a contradiction. But see, the God is not one in the same way that he's three. God is one in a different sense, in a different way than he's three. God is one in essence, but three in persons. He's not one in essence and three in essences. Right? He's not one in person and three in persons. He's one in essence and three in persons. He is one in a different way than he is three. And this is really not as big a stretch to understand as you might think about the concept of three in one, at least on the surface, because we see this three in one relationship all around us. We just don't realize we're seeing it. Like the things that make up the universe, such as time. Time is one. There's only one time, right? There's not multiple times. There's one universal time, right? But time is also three, past, present, future. The past is still fully time. The present is still fully time. The future is still fully time, right? But what you have to understand then is the past is still not the present, and the present is not the future. There are distinctions. Time is one and three, but they are one and three in different ways. Right? But they're still all time. And the same way with space. Space is unified. Right? There's only one universe. That's why I call it a universe. One. All space is connected. It's all one. But space is still exists in three different planes. You have length and width and height. Length, width, and height are all space, but they're not the same things. They are distinct from one another. Now, to make it even more complicated, is actually there are more uh, spatial dimensions than three, which means God could be more than triune really easy. But the idea is still the same. We can see how something can be one in one sense and three in another sense without there really being a contradiction. Now, as I've said before, I understand that all analogies don't fully convey the truth about God because he's beyond our universe. But they at least help us to see how something can be three in one at the same time, especially when, when it's different in its oneness and its threeness. God is one in essence and three in persons. God is a trinity, tri-unity. And just because we struggle to visualize it, just because we struggle to wrap our heads around it, doesn't, doesn't make it false. Like I said, you can't even wrap your head around the distance of a, of a light year. You can't physically even imagine what that looks like. Not to mention 96, million, 96 billion of them. You don't argue with the fact that the universe is 96 billion, the observable universe is 96 billion light years across. Right? Just because you can't spatially recognize that doesn't mean that you go, oh, that's not true. 
the fact that this understanding of God doesn't fit inside your head actually is really positive. And what I mean by that is because if you could fully understand God, then he's not God. He's you. He would just be a figment of your imagination. He would be an idol. He'd be something made in your own image that you can relate to. But he's not God. God is a trinity. Now, the fact that God is a trinity has gigantic implications for us. And it begins with the fact that God is love. Because God is eternally a trinity means that he has been eternally in relationship with himself in the Godhead. The Father has always been with the Son. The Son has always been with the Holy Spirit. They've been in community, in a relationship together for eternity past, which means God can be, in His very nature, love. Because the relationship that love requires has always been there for all eternity. The Father has always loved the Son. Always. The Son has always loved the Father. The Holy Spirit has always loved and been loved by the Father and the Son. God is love because He is a relationship within Himself. Which means one of the things that makes God God is the fact that He is love. He is the very essence of love. And because of that, because of that love, God has done something for us absolutely marvelous and breathtaking. Because of that love, he made a way for his enemies, those who rebelled against him, those who spurned his love. He made a way for us to be saved. That's what that love accomplishes. God being love. God so loved the world that he did what in love people do. He gave He gave what was most precious to him, his only son, the son that he had loved for eternity past, the son that had been with him for eternity past, where they had unbroken fellowship for eternity past. He gave his son, his only son, who then in turn gave his very life because of that love. And he did so for a purpose, so that whoever believes in him, puts their trust in him, would not perish, would not be sent to hell, but instead would, present tense, have, the moment they believe, eternal life. That love created a way for us to have a relationship with the God forever. God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us so that we would have eternal life. This is only possible because God in his nature is love and he can only be loved if he is a trinity. Salvation is only available in a loving triune God and nowhere else. And more than that, more than that, to understand this, Christ's death really means nothing if God is not the Trinity. I want you to hear me on this. If there's anything that you take away from everything we talked about today, Christ's death means nothing if God is not a Trinity. Here's why. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You see, Paul is saying that it costs God something for you to be set free. 
But if God is not a triune God, then what price could he possibly pay for you? It cost him something. What price did he actually give to save you? I mean, if Jesus is a created being and, and you know, he is not eternally God and God killed him and resurrected him, so what? What did it cost God to do that? Nothing. It's really just a show. God can kill and resurrect all he wants to. Like, there's no, like it's no big deal. If God is not triune, then God did not experience any kind of loss which means there was no sacrifice, which means it was not a price that was really paid. It's just a show. It's just an illusion. There's nothing to it if God does not exist as more than one person. But if God is, in fact, triune, if there is one God who exists as three persons, if there is a loving, deep relationship in the members of the Trinity, then this cost is absolutely real and devastating and breathtaking. And the words that you were bought with a price means something. David Gunderson is a pastor and a former professor. He wrote an article titled, You Were Bought with a Price. And I've shared it before, but I'm going to share it again because it really speaks to the reality of this price. He says, most Christians are familiar with the powerful phrase, you were bought with a price. It renders a hammer blow to our constant notion of personal rights and privileges, and it reminds us quite forcefully that we belong to Christ and not ourselves. You're bought with a price, and this purchase has invasive implications. When God purchased you from the slave market of sin, his goal for you was not minor tweaking or slight service. He aims for and demands your absolute transformation and absolute ownership. He bought you. He owns you. No conditions, no qualifications, no fine print. You are his. And this is staggering enough as it stands. The implications of my life being owned by another are far-reaching and pervasive, he says. Yet Paul is getting at something much deeper and more intense, much more devastating. You're not just bought. You're bought with a price. Why did Paul add this phrase? Why did he just say you were bought? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Doesn't the concept of purchase include the concept of price? Doesn't the idea of buying logically include a cost? Were the Corinthians so economically challenged that they needed to be reminded that the ideas of a purchase and price are, are logically linked? There, there, there seems to be some kind of significant conceptual redundancy here. But the Corinthians were not naive about the marketplace, and Paul was not being redundant. He is not simply saying you were bought, and as with every purchase there was a price. He is not reminding them about the general conceptual connection between purchase and price. He is talking about blood. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the son. You were bought and look at what it cost. You were bought. Do not forget the price that was paid or from God's perspective. I bought you and I paid dearly. Oh, how much he paid, he says. See Christ on the cross, forsaken by the Father, forsaken by the Father, so that he, we might be forgiven and not forgiven, not just forgiven, but reconciled, not just reconciled, but sanctified, and not just sanctified, but, but glorified, and not just glorified, but adopted. See the Father turning his back 
on his heaving, suffocating, agonized, mystified son for the first and last in last time in history of time and eternity. Hear the son cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hear the father say, this is my beloved son. My beloved son, the one that I've loved for all eternity, in whom I am well pleased. And then hear the prophet say, the Lord was pleased to crush him. God's pleasure in his son and his pleasure in crushing his son are incompatible and incomprehensible. Which is why Paul does not just say you were bought. He says you were bought with a price. How many things have been bought and sold and bartered in the history of the world? The number is almost infinite. But there has never been a purchase like this purchase. And there has never been a price like this price. So if you're looking for a motivating reason to devote yourself to God afresh today, this is it. If you're searching for a reason to get up in the morning to fulfill your Christian responsibilities, he says, let this be your reason. If you desperately need strength to love, serve, pray, fight, forgive, study, stand, preach, parent, witness, endure, and rejoice, here is the gospel strength. Because perhaps the only redemptive reality more powerful than the fact that you were bought is the height of the price that was paid. You were bought the price. And Christian... That only means something if God is a triune God. That only means something if God was in forever in a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It only means something if God the Father, who dearly loves God the Son, sent him by the power of God the Holy Spirit to the earth to suffer and to die and to pay the real price for you. Because God is love. And he, Father, Son, and Spirit, loved you so much that he made a very real sacrifice to save you. Let me pray for you. Father, This truth is awe-inspiring to me. I cannot fully wrap my head around it. I cannot fully visualize it. I can't describe how it works as much as I try. I get lost in the theology of it. I get lost in the the images of it. I get lost trying to, to, to wrap my head around it. But Father, I just, I look forward to the day, Lord. As your word says, the way I'm known, I will know. Father, that I will stand before you one day because you love me by your grace. You have decided to save me that one day I will see you in heaven and I will know what that means. I'll be like, wow, that's really, that makes sense. But now it it, it doesn't fully make sense. But Lord, help me. Help me, Lord God, to just trust it. That's what I'm called to do is to trust you. You said that you were one God. You said the Father, Son, and Spirit are God, all equally God. And Lord, I believe it. I trust it. And I take your word for it. And that's how I walk. You said, Lord, that you're eternal. I can't even imagine that. You said that you're holy. I can't imagine that either. And then 
transcendent and imminent. Lord, you're beyond my imagination. Lord, let me forever bask in the glory of your magnitude and magnificence. Father, let all of us, Lord, take these truths to heart. Let your word penetrate our hearts. Let us, Lord God, know that this is the truth because the Spirit compels us to know that this is the truth and that this is how you revealed yourself and that we will walk in that forever, always trusting that our God is three in one, Father, Spirit, Son. Father, I pray that you would use what we know about you to move us to a greater level of worship for you and that you would cause that then to to cause us to go out into the world and share the hope that we have in Christ with other people. That, Lord, that we would not just be, be satisfied with knowing some things about you, that it would cause us, it would motivate us to share the beauty of Christ with other people, Lord. We pray for those who are hurting. We pray for those who are broken, Lord. Save them, Lord God, we beg you. We pray that you'd raise up a people in this community that would go and share the gospel with every single person in this town. And people would be saved to your glory, Lord God, and know you. Father, we pray that you'd raise up a people who would go and storm the gates of hell for your glory. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Father God, that you would bless all those who are here and those who are not. That you would heal up those who are sick. Lord, there's so many people fighting off sickness. And you would meet the needs of those who need, whether it's financial or emotional or spiritual. And that, Father, that you would draw us together and a deeper and more intimate fellowship with each other and with you, Lord God. Lord, be glorified in your church today. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.